Six men, one plan perfectly executed, lots of gold, the Italian job. That's the title of a movie originally made in 1969 and remade in 2003 that tells the story of a major heist. And I want to introduce you to the characters. First, we have John Bridger. This guy is a longtime safe cracker who arranges for one final job to take place in Venice before he retires and hands things over to Charlie. Charlie is the official planner of the Italian job. He coordinates everything, proving that he is capable of taking over for Bridger. He recruits four team members. First, Steve, the inside man. Second, handsome Rob. He provides transportation. Third, Left ear. This guy is the explosives expert. He lost his hearing in his ear as a kid when he blew an M80 a little too close to call. And then fourth, we have Lyle, excuse me, Lyle, who is the technology expert. Now, their plan was absolutely perfect. As each one of these thieves did his part, everything went off without a hitch. With the proper amount of diversions, we see the action of the movie and the gold seeming to go one way when in reality it's going the exact opposite direction, subtly escaping out of sight. They pull it off. And as you would expect, the next scene, we see them celebrating together. They're in a circle and they're laughing and they're talking about what they're going to do with their newly acquired income. And Bridger takes a moment to hold up his champagne glass to toast Charlie, to honor him. And in so doing, he passes the baton. Charlie has done a great job. He's thought of everything. Or has he? Steve, known, you remember, as the inside man, has been doing some planning of his own. He knows the route they're going to take. He knows the amount of gold that they have. And he knows that they're not prepared for an ambush. And so he hires some hard-looking armed men to help him steal the gold. He betrays his team from the inside. The rest of the movie chronicles their attempt to get their gold back, but more importantly, to satisfy their longing for revenge, which means, in other words, this is a good, wholesome Christian movie. Yeah, you should see the look on their faces when they realize that Steve has betrayed him. They're devastated. They're totally shocked. It's awful to experience betrayal from someone on the inside. Now, in our lives, we're co-opted from the inside, too. It's called temptation. It's an inside job. We're studying the New Testament book of James in this series called Faith That Makes a Difference. Last week, we reflected on trials as we made our way through James 1, 1 through 12. And this week, we'll focus on James 1, verses 13 through 18 and temptation. So if you have your own Bible, I'd encourage you to make your way to James 1. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will come up on the screen and you can read along there. Now, temptation, temptation is an interesting thing to think about for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them especially stands out, and that's that we think about temptation probably most often in this setting at church because it's acceptable here. You don't expect to think about, talk about temptation at work or at school or in a restaurant or maybe even at home. Now, recognizing, though, that this is a place where it's somewhat acceptable, you might expect us to talk about it, doesn't mean we want to think about it, doesn't mean we want to talk about it, doesn't mean we actually want to do anything about it, but at least we know that it can happen here. Temptation is something that every single one of us faces. In fact, we've probably faced it even recently. Now, the reason I bring all of that up is because we might be tempted. Come on, you guys. We might be tempted to pretend that this isn't for us. 
But I think that would be a mistake. I would encourage you not to think this isn't for you. Instead, to actually identify an area where you are tempted. In other words, if we just keep this way out there, then it's not going to have any effect in our lives. So in what area do you face temptation in your life? Rather than asking you to share that with the person next to you, I just want you to lock something in. If you can't identify something, maybe I can help you. I'm going to give you a couple of different categories. This is from a list that I made for myself this week. See if any of these relate to you. Overindulging in eating or entertainment. Laziness. Lying. Worrying. Stealing. Putting other people down. Anger. Impatience. Complaining. Gossiping. Being stingy. Should I keep going? I don't want to. Lock something in for you. Because if everything that these verses say is true about temptation, then none of us can afford to blow this off. In more than 10 years of doing ministry, I've had lots of conversations with people about temptation. And most often, three questions are asked. And I want to ask and answer those three questions as we make our way through this section of James. So follow along as I read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. James writes, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows." He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Question number one Where does temptation come from? The answer to this question is found in verse 14. Take a look. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. There are several things worth noting in this verse, but I want to begin by drawing your attention to this word tempted. It seems rather obvious that we would find the word tempted in a message on temptation. But to the original listeners or readers of this letter, this word was a bit complex. Glance up to verse 2 of chapter 1. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now we studied this last week and we learned that trials are difficulties that come into our lives from outside. And so you're thinking, well, what on earth does that have to do with temptation? Well, you may know this already, but in verses 13 through 15 of our passage for today, James uses the word translated trials in verses 2 and following to talk about temptation in verses 13 to 15. That may seem a bit confusing, and for us it is a little bit confusing, but for his original recipients, this probably wasn't that confusing. Native speakers are able to put these kinds of things together. It's what we do with language. James isn't being lazy like he couldn't find his thesaurus this day while he was writing. No, he's intentionally using a method that he uses throughout the entire letter of James. He talks about one topic, and then using a link word, he moves on into the next section. He uses these link words to tie these different sections together. Now, a quick aside. Some, of, some people will use an excuse like this to, to, to say, I'm not going to read my Bible. They'll say something like, you know, this is really complex. If James is using the same word to talk about two different things between these two different sections, how on earth am I ever going to understand my Bible? And they throw up their hands dramatically. Well, that's not the case. You can't understand your Bible. 
If I was to show you my notes to this message, you'd see a footnote to the study Bible note, the NIV study Bible note on chapter 1, verse 2, and it would say that James uses the word, same word in Greek to refer to two different things here. We can begin to understand our Bibles as we're reading them, we get more used to them, and they train us to do the reading correctly. Now, James uses these different link words. This observation tips us off to an insight. Trials and temptations, the same word for James, are connected. They're related in some way. Here's how. The trial or the test that I'm facing provides the context often for temptation. My company is facing some kind of financial difficulties and I'm struggling to persevere through them and the tension is beginning to rise and I feel the need for relief to be met and the temptation to fudge the numbers all of a sudden becomes very real to me. Temptations come oftentimes out of our trials. Trials provide the context for temptation. Now, I don't think that that can be debated But it does lead us to a little bit of a thorny question on the basis of something that we learned last week. Trials or tests, they come from God for a whole variety of reasons. If you haven't listened to the sermon from last week, I encourage you to do so. Does that mean that temptation, which we've said can be related to trials, also comes from God? Is God involved somehow in our temptations? Is God the one who's actually trying to trip us up by temptation's assault? James anticipates this very question in verse 13. Take a look. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Is God tempting us? No. James emphatically denies the possibility by saying that God has an incapacity for evil. He can't be tempted, and he doesn't tempt anyone. Okay, so then we're back to our question. Where does temptation come from? We'll look back at verse 14. Point out a couple more things here. James writes, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. These phrases, each person and their own, underscore the fact that temptation is an inside job. We, each of us, are responsible for our temptations. There are, of course, external pressures, other factors that play in, but ultimately it comes down to individual responsibility. Temptation comes from inside me. Which means, in other words, we can't say the devil made me do it. Unless, of course, we mean devil the way that John Bridger uses it in the Italian job. As I was walking through the initial scenes of the movie to kind of remind myself for my introduction how things went, I noticed something very interesting. I said that the primary themes of the movie are obviously non-Christian, making that joke. But that doesn't mean they're devoid of anything redeeming. So John Bridger is having this conversation with Steve, you remember, who is the inside man, the guy who betrays them. And they're talking about whether or not someone that Steve has hired is going to come through on their part of the plan. They're not part of the team. They've been hired, subcontracted to participate. And Steve says to John... Yes, they're going to come through. You can trust them. And John responds with something that becomes kind of a theme throughout the movie. Here's what he says. I quote, I trust everyone. I just don't trust the devil inside them. Now, as we've already learned, Steve pays attention to the devil inside him by betraying his team. And so I found it really interesting that the DVD creators titled that scene on the DVD scene selection, The Devil Inside. 
recognizing that the devil inside Steve caused him to betray his team, but that he was actually the devil inside the team. These movie makers are pretty savvy about the nature of temptation, right? Temptation is something that comes from inside each person. The Bible doesn't teach that there's a devil inside of us, but verse 14 does make it clear that temptation comes from inside each of us. Now, we're going to get more specific about how that happens in a moment, but I do want to pause here to respond to a potential objection that might be raised in your mind. Some of us might wonder how we can be held responsible for something that we can't seem to control, something that we can't even seem to understand. How can I be held responsible for something that comes inside me? And the simple response to that is just to draw attention to the fact that we do things on a pretty regular basis that we don't understand completely, but we're still held responsible for them. You know, one example is marriage. You don't understand that thing when you commit to it. I stood holding the hands of my lovely wife-to-be saying all sorts of wonderful things, having no idea how that was all going to play out. <laughs> the same is true for children. You decide to have children, you commit to it, you're still held responsible for that decision, even though, as I've heard someone recently say, you never get the ones you want. Temptation comes from inside each person. And James gets even more specific at this point. Look again at verse 14. He says, their own evil desire. Now this phrase, evil desire, is one word in Greek. It's a word that can be used in either a positive or negative way, depending on the context. And so here, when talking about temptation, it's obviously appropriate to say evil desire. And that's really important for us to note because desires, then, are not necessarily bad. God made us to desire, and he ultimately wants to satisfy those desires, but those desires can be twisted so that they become the agent of temptation. And that's exactly what James describes here. Evil desires tempt us to engage in sinful behaviors, and he says in the, in the last line of verse 14, we are dragged away and enticed by those evil desires. These words trigger images of hunting or fishing in our minds. The process of enticing a fish with bait leads to me reeling him in, dragging him away. Isn't that exactly how it works with the, with the temptation that you identified earlier? You know, you overhear some conversation going on about someone and you suddenly take a little bit of interest and the, the hook has the bait has gotten on the hook and you're kind of listening in and instead of plugging your ears or running away so that you don't hear this juicy information, you instead listen. And then the moment you have an opportunity, you share that gossip with somebody else and you kind of add some more dramatic flair to it, hooked and dragged away. Where does temptation come from? It comes from inside us. Our own evil desire drags us away. They entice us. They're the source of temptation. Temptation is an inside job. Question number two. What damage can temptation do in my life? What damage can temptation do in my life? The first week of July 1924 started out pretty normally, or at least I should say somewhat normally, for a president. In this case, the 30th president of the United States, and I know that I don't have to tell you who that is, Calvin Coolidge. He and his family gathered on the, the, at the White House for some family pictures, and they had their dog, Rob Roy, right in the middle. He was gathered there with his wife and his two sons, John, 18, and Calvin, Jr., 16. And the minute they got done taking several different family pictures, his sons took off 
went to change their clothes so that they could go play some tennis. For some strange reason, some unknown reason, Calvin Jr. decided to play an entire afternoon's worth of tennis without any socks on. And as you can imagine, he got a blister, and that blister got infected. He spiked a fever, and within a week, he was dead. A blister, a tiny, small blister, unchecked and untreated, had disastrous, even deadly results. In case we didn't take the language of verse 14 seriously enough, dragging away and enticed by our own evil desires, James intensifies the future of temptation for us in verse 15. The simple answer to the question, what damage can temptation do in my life, is that it will destroy you. Look at verse 15. He says, Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James pulls back the curtain for us, allowing us to peer into the future so that we can see exactly how temptation following that road will unfold in our lives if we take the bait. And I want to look at this from two different angles so that we can see where temptation will take us, but also so that it can yield, so that we can glean some insights for our own lives. So, first, I want to think about this as the time of temptation. You'll notice that James, in talking about temptation, talks about from conception to birth. He's talking about the process of temptation. He expands on verse 14, conception to birth. And he uses this language from the sexual or reproductive world to draw out this process. Most Bible scholars think that James is reflecting on a specific passage or several passages in the Old Testament about temptation. Specifically Proverbs chapter 5. Look at verses 3 and 5. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. He continues in verses 8 and 11. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. Now, can you see how... How the seductress in Proverbs 5 relates, connects back to the pregnancy process in James 1. How do they connect? They both are dealing with time. They both take time. It's a process thing. In the case of physical birth, it takes nine months. In the case of temptation, there is a period between the moment of temptation and when we actually indulge in it. Now, recognizing that temptations develop, they take time rules out an excuse that we'll often use either to ourselves, to defend ourselves to ourselves, or with other people, when we'll say, man, I, it just happened so fast, there was nothing I could do about it. Well, it's just not true. You know, we've been feeding this thing. If you use the language of Proverbs, we've been walking back and forth in front of her house. We've been flirting with her from a distance. We then walk in, finally, after a long period of time engaging with this temptation. You know, for me, I love, I love books. I love books more than I can possibly tell you I love books. There's no way that when I decide to finally blow the budget and just buy that stinking book, that I was like, oh, in that moment of temptation, I was just overcome. I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't even see it coming. No, what happened was I spent three days going back and forth to Amazon, thinking about it, dreaming about it in my hand, and then finally I gave in. 
Temptations develop. They take time. We feed those things and eventually we give in. James says it's like from conception to birth. It takes time. It's a process. Here's the other angle. Look at verse 15 through this angle, the size of temptation. James starts with desire, he moves to sin, and then he ends in death. It's pretty obvious that desire in this verse starts out small, because as it develops, it leads to sin, which we're then told is full-grown. Something started small and then full-grown. Evil desires start out small in our lives, but they inevitably grow bigger and bigger and bigger until they end in destruction. In our grown-up, enlightened, liberated culture, we're taught that we don't need to sweat the small stuff. Is that lie really that big of a deal? I can look at this stuff. It's not going to kill me. And James completely disagrees. We want to minimize sin so that we can make it tolerable. But all sin, small and big, is a big deal. I can safely say that anybody who ruined their life didn't do so by indulging in really huge aggressive sin. Instead, slowly but surely, small desires satisfied inappropriately multiply until they kill you. It's a small infection that leads to disastrous results. Temptation works a process on us so that over time, small and big sins end in the same damaging result, which James calls death. Seems like he's primarily talking about spiritual death here so that sins, even though they can be forgiven through Jesus, have a way of deadening our relationship with God. But that's not all he means. And what other damage can sin do? Although he's primarily talking about spiritual deadness, we can infer that the end result can be destruction in our relationships, in our health, in our finances, in our very lives. Destruction. Now, I can't say for sure, but it seems to me that James holds up the end of the road where temptation leads to serve as a deterrent for us, a way of resisting temptation. Thinking about the future makes me say, man, I don't want to go down that road. And that leads us then to our final question. How do I resist temptation? How do I resist temptation? In an effort to win the war on drugs, in the 1980s, there was an initiative that began called Just Say No. You're probably familiar with this initiative. I think that the intentions and impulses of this were wholly good, but I also think that from this vantage point down the road, it's safe to say that this thing failed. And I think it failed, at least from my own personal experience, because in the, fifth, in the, in the first grade when we were hearing all about Just Say No, lots of my friends heard about Just Say No, but instead they said Just Say Yes a lot all the way through high school. Some people argue that just say no didn't work because it was too simple. They oversimplified things. Just say no isn't enough. We, we have to identify some of the positive benefits, the, the satisfaction that does come from doing drugs, but then ultimately point out that it does ruin your life. So that kids could make decisions on the basis of pros and cons. They would develop wise kids, discerning kids, so that they'd make the right decision when drugs were offered to them. Now, I think that there's something to that, although I'm a bit suspicious that an eight-year-old like I was would have had the ability to work through the implications and make a wise decision. I think the more compelling reason it didn't work is because negative motivations don't work as well as positive motivations. 
Telling me to say no to something doesn't help me necessarily say no to it. In fact, it's much easier to say yes to this than it is to say no to that. And so it's easier for me to think, yes, I would rather have a brain that worked in high school and college so I could learn, or I would rather be fully present to develop relationships. Here's the point. Motivation matters. Motivation matters. And so it strikes me that James has taken part in what looks like a just-say-no campaign so far in these verses. Essentially, when you look at the issue of temptation, as far as we've gone, we've said, no, don't do it. It's going to go bad for you. But we haven't acknowledged that satisfying your desires by indulging in sin can be exhilarating. It can be. We haven't acknowledged that some of the consequences that can bring destruction into your life won't come immediately. They might not. Both of those things are true. But experiencing some satisfaction by indulging in sin and skirting some of the consequences isn't good enough. If there's one thing that our desires tell us, these deep-seated desires, they tell us that they can't be satisfied in quick ways. They've got to be satisfied with something very deep. I could say this even better. They've got to be satisfied by someone, the one who made us with these desires. James turns a corner in verse 16. He moves from the smallness of life lived under the power of sin and temptation, and he moves to a life lived for God by his power. Follow along as I read the final verses, 16 through 18. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. If you were reading this on your own, I'm guessing one of the first questions that would pop into your mind would be, don't be deceived about what? Verse 16 serves as a bridge linking verses 13 through 15 and verses 17 through 18. And so as a bridge, it looks back to a degree. That is, don't be deceived by the source and the future of temptation. But then it also looks forward. That is, don't be deceived about the character of God. You'll remember that in the first question that we just looked at a little bit ago, we looked at verse 13. We glanced there. In that verse, God's character is the thing in question. Is God to blame for our temptation? Is he somehow involved in all of this? Take a look again at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. So when we looked at this earlier, I simply pointed out that according to James, it's wrong to say that God is involved in our temptations. In that sense, it's wrong because it's not true. But it's wrong on another level as well. It's wrong because it's foolish. Think about this for a second. It's foolish because I put myself on the opposite side of God when I blame him for my temptation, either directly or indirectly. Now think, is it a good idea or a bad idea to be on the opposite side of God? Bad idea, right? It's foolish to be on the opposite side of God because then I rob myself of the opportunity to have my needs met by the one person who can satisfy them. Do you follow that? God isn't the author of our temptations. Instead, he's the glorious alternative. He offers to meet our deepest needs. I said before that God has created us with desires, and now I'm saying these desires are only fully met, only fully satisfied in him. God made each of us for God. 
And you're only ever fully alive when you're walking with him. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if this is true for you or not. But when I reflect on the fact that God actually offers to meet all of my deepest needs, I'm a little bit suspicious. Because sin looks pretty good. Temptation takes me down a road that I think is pretty exhilarating. And so I want to pull up a chair and I just want to ask James, so you're saying that when I indulge in sin, I'm guaranteed some sense of satisfaction, although you've also talked about destruction. But if I was to, br- if I was to bring my deepest desires to God, that I could experience true, lasting, real satisfaction, James, and I think he'd jump out of his seat and say, yes, the way to resist temptation is to go and have your needs met by the one who can actually meet them at the deepest level of your person. God is the one who can do that. Look at some of the ways that he describes God that make this point in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, James calls God generous. Specifically, he says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Which means that God gives us exactly what we need and in the amount that we need it. So as we come to him, he gives us the things that we actually are longing for so deep inside of us. Rest and peace and purpose, affirmation, love, security, things that are truly our deepest needs. God can give us those things so that we don't have to walk down the road of temptation for them. He can supply us with everything that we need to actually satisfy. He's the giver of every perfect gift. Then in in verse 17, James also says God is glorious. That's my summary word for, for what he says, Father of heavenly lights. He's almost positively talking about God as creator. He's made everything, including us. He oversees everything, including us. So as the creator, he's been doing that from the start, which means he's not going to change like shifting shadows. We don't need to go we don't need to go anywhere else in life to look for a fix because God can supply everything we need. And finally in verse 18 he says that God is gracious. James says that God is the one who can give us birth through the word of truth. He's back on the birth topic although he's contrasting it this time from birth leading to spiritual death, this time it's birth leading to spiritual life. He's talking about the spiritual life that comes when we put our faith in Jesus and it evidences that there's a whole new creation. The new creation has begun. God is changing us. When we were spiritually dead in our sins, when we were separated from God because of our own wickedness, God saw to it that the word of truth came to us. The word of truth is the good news that God sent his son Jesus who died and was raised to life, paying the penalty for our sins so he can offer us forgiveness and new life. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus, then God has met the very, very deepest needs, the deepest desires of your heart, which means he can certainly meet the smaller ones as well. It's from this place of new life, new birth, that we have new power, a new heart, new resolve to walk with God rather than to walk down the road of temptation. If you haven't put your faith, your trust in Jesus, then I encourage you to do that today. Go to the Welcome Center at your campus and talk with someone about starting a relationship with God. How this new birth, this new life, this new creation thing begins. How do I respond to temptation? How do I resist temptation at the expense of sounding impractical or trite? I just want to answer the question by drawing your attention to the big, the fundamental answer. Go to God. 
Or in the words of Psalm 37, verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's true. Now, put simply, where does temptation come from? Inside. What damage can it do in my life? Destruction. And how can I resist? How do I resist temptation? Walk with God. At this time, I want to hand things over to our campus pastors. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to take a moment to pray, asking God to do that, to satisfy our deepest needs even now. But I also want to encourage you to take advantage of a moment to pray with someone you came with, a friend, a family member, someone around you, or our prayer team members who will be up on the sides in just a few minutes who want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are generous, that you are glorious, that you don't change, that you are gracious to us in Jesus. And I do pray, Father, even right now, that all of us, as we face temptation, as we look at temptation, as we might have even been toying with some temptation here in the last couple of days, that we would have the ability on the basis of who you are, knowing your character, to not blame you, but to ask you to meet our deepest needs. Father, we pray for new resolve, for new power that comes through Jesus and his spirit to be able to say no to temptation and more importantly to run in the direction of the one who can satisfy our deepest needs. I pray that would happen in concert with accountability partners, with Bible reading to get God's word deep into our veins and with spending time crying out in prayer for help in the middle of it. God, would you give us all that we need just like you said you would to be able to navigate these things for the honor and glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.